Well, many of you have probably already heard uh, the news that just over a week ago, a little over a week ago, um, New York passed uh, one of the most horrendous abortion bills that has really ever been in our nation. Allowing abortions all the way up till birth. Uh, in instances where the health of the mother is at risk. Now, New York already had legislation that allowed abortions up till birth in instances where the life of the mother was at risk. But this new legislation, this new bill, allows for um, instances where the health of the mother is at risk. And obviously, you know, that, that leaves things quite vague and, uh, and leaves a lot of wiggle room for doctors to uh, allow their patients to go through an abortion um, all the way up until that moment, right, which is, which is tragic. Uh, you know, it's adding to the already almost 50 million babies killed since Roe vs. Wade. That was the 70s, right, Roe vs. Wade? 73? Almost 50 million babies killed in our nation. That's all we're talking about, in our nation, since Roe vs. Wade. That's horrendous. I remember the, the night we, we heard the news. You know, I always like to wait a little bit, kind of let dust settle. Because when I first heard the news, it was people going, um, you can have an abortion for any reason up till the moment of birth. And, and, then, and then I started hearing the opposing people say, no, 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 it's only in instances where the life of the mother is at risk. And then, you know, the truth finally comes out and it's where the health of the mother is at risk. You know, you always, you always want to kind of wade through things and wait till the dust settles. You kind of wade through all the reactionary news, if you will. Wait till the dust settles so you can finally hear the real facts. Anyway, um, when, we, when we heard that news, Sarah and I, uh, we had put the kids to bed we were sitting downstairs uh, on our couch and we were just kind of catching up from the day and talking. And this was something that was both weighing heavy on us from, from the day. And, uh, and we were just kind of processing through it to each other. And, and Sarah said this, she said, she said, you know, usually I can see both sides of an argument. Which, by the way, is a very healthy and, and good skill to have. To be able to see both sides of an argument no matter how much you disagree with it, right? To understand where someone is coming from. Because the reality is you can never change a person's mind if you don't understand where they're coming from. Reactionary people who just, you know, just explode on others never actually transform people's minds. People who take the time to listen, to hear, to learn where someone is at and why they believe what they believe, even if you know it's absolutely wrong, right? Even if you know it's not true, to be able to listen and hear and value them and respect them and, and all of that and, and know at least where they're coming from is a very valuable skill set in any sort of rhetoric or debate. Um, Sarah, Sarah says to me, she goes, she goes, you know, usually I can see both sides of an argument. She said, but with this, I am at a complete loss. Like, I cannot, for the life of me, even begin to see how someone could think this is okay. And I, and I was frankly in hearty agreement. I, I was at a complete loss. 
You know, I can understand, not that it's any less horrendous, but I can at least understand that if a person doesn't believe in a spirit, they might think aborting a single-cell baby in the womb is not a big deal. Right? I can at least understand that. I don't agree with it. I think it's still murder. But I can at least understand it. You know, in a situation where someone genuinely feels like they're about to die and they're, they're husband and wife and they're trying to figure out, you know, is, are we going to go through this delivery and maybe the baby and myself are going to die, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't agree with it, but I can at least understand it. In this situation, though, we were both sitting there and we were at just a complete loss and Sarah said, I can't even see the opposing argument. Like, I genuinely don't even understand how anyone could possibly think this is okay. And I just kind of sat there in silence for a moment, agreeing, total agreement. And, and I just, I went, it's human depravity. Like, there's no other answer, right? It's, it's the depravity of humanity. The fact that by nature, people, all of us, all of humanity, before Christ, our natures are twisted. They're malformed. They're unable to fully reflect God in his righteousness. And I, I, at a loss, I just kind of look at her and I go, human depravity. And, and that struck me. Like, as I said those words, that kind of struck me, I'll be honest with you. Because I realized it had been quite a while since I really rat wrestled with that very fundamental, very core Christian doctrine, the doctrine of depravity. It's very core to our faith. You throw that out, you get into a lot of messy waters. But I realized, as I said those words, like I, I had, I had, it had been a while since I had actually really wrestled with that and, and thought about that. Because it's easy in a pseudo-Christian culture to kind of come to this thinking that, you know, people are generally good. People are generally, you know, we have some, we have some extreme bad things that occur, but on the whole, people are pretty okay. You know, it's easy to kind of come to that in, in this pseudo-Christian culture we live in. You know, I, I, I use the word pseudo-Christian culture. Like, since 4th century, since Christendom was established, not Christianity, not the followers of Christ, but the dominion of Christianity, which is different than the kingdom of God, not the dominion of God, but the dominion of Christianity, Christendom. You know, since the 4th century, there has been pseudo-Christian culture. Rome, in the Edict of Thessalonica, established Christianity as the official state religion of Rome. Giving political power and giving special privilege to Christians. Which means then everyone wants to be a Christian so that they have privilege. You know, and, and, we, and then, you know, that, that mindset, that Christendom mindset, is established even more fully throughout the Middle Ages as Christendom expands into Europe and takes over all of Europe and establishes Christian nations all throughout Europe. I mean, all of Western society is pseudo-Christian. 
Understand, before the Christianization of Rome, Christian values were not regarded in any capacity. Love, agape, okay? That, that love we talk about, which is self-sacrificial and, and unconditional and willing to give of yourself for the betterment of others, regardless of their actions and behavior. Like that kind of self-sacrificial love, in Rome, that was actually seen as a weakness. That was not a virtue. It was seen as a weakness. Power and might was a virtue. Meekness and love were weaknesses. But when Christianity was established as the state religion, all of a sudden Christian values began to become ingrained in society. Even in a society that's very much not Christian. Pseudo-Christian. Very much nominally Christian. Right? This is, this is how we have, you know, in, in, this, in this culture now that's beginning to reject um, you know, an overt Christian value system. That's how we can still talk about things like self-sacrificial love and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's such a good thing. I mean, you don't, you don't argue, nobody argues that. I mean, maybe very few, but nobody argues that. You know, you have a movie that comes out and it's all about a mom self-sacrificing for her child or something and everyone praises it. Everyone's like, that is so good. Right? Because they have been, whether they realize it or not, they have been Christianized in their thinking. In their thinking. Christendom has made them think in terms of Christian values, even if they're not believers themselves. They're nominally, right? So that in this culture that is pseudo-Christian and has always been, all of Western, Christian, all of Western culture has been pseudo-Christian since the 4th century. It's easy to forget you know, that, that people are depraved. That people aren't generally good. That there is a wickedness at the heart of man that needs an antidote. That needs a solution. So I'm sitting there with Sarah and, and I'm just like, human depravity. Like that's, why? Why is this occurring? How could in this progressive modern culture can we be okay with infanticide? human depravity like there isn't another answer the problem that began to set in in my heart though when i said those words i began dwelling on that i began i said those words i began thinking about that i realized i, I was beginning to be tempted in that moment to drive a wedge between myself and the world. To retreat then, because of that revelation of human depravity, which is absolutely true and absolutely fundamental to our Christian faith, I found myself wanting then to retreat into this us-versus-them mindset. Right? Where, you know, you, you grit your teeth, you, you, you recluse yourself, and, and you hunker down in defense against the world. Or, or maybe you go after the world, but you're, because it's us versus them, you're attacking everyone in the world. And I found myself dwelling on this and beginning to retreat into myself in this us versus them mindset. And, and very quickly, the Lord had to catch me before I went too deep. And he's like, no, 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 no. I need to show you a healthier way. 
right? And so I began to come out of it and just dwell on him and allow him to speak to me, right? So this, this is actually what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about this very core and central doctrine, the depravity of humanity. At the same time, I want to talk about how we as believers then should healthily respond to that doctrine so that we don't fall into the trap of us versus them because that is a trap. Paul says we do not war against flesh and blood. Our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We are actually not fighting people ever, ever. We're fighting principalities and powers, demonic spirits of wickedness. We're not fighting people. So, the reality of human depravity and how we as believers are supposed to respond to that in a healthy way that actually brings true redemption, which is the whole point, right? So, Father God, I pray that uh, you would just continue to guide and direct this service that the words that come out of my mouth would be directed and guided by your Holy Spirit. And, and that which has the grace of life on it, may, may it, may it like ignite, God, as, as it comes out of my mouth. May it ignite, become spirit, and actually give empowerment and strength and, and actually become a blessing to, to those who are hearing it today. God, may you build us into a healthy body that responds, that doesn't react, but responds in righteousness, responds in, in, in ways that enables redemption of the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we know this passage of Scripture, and there's been plenty of teaching around the image of God in the church. What that means to be an image bearer of God. What that means to actually, in some fashion, look like God. Now, we, we don't look like God physically because God is spirit. Well, okay, Jesus is incarnate, so we do kind of look like God physically, don't we? But it's interesting, Jesus actually chooses to look like us yeah, that's kind of, anyway. God is spirit. He's not talking about, you know, oh, let me, let me make them stand upright and have two hands and a, two eyes and a nose and, you know, because that's what I look like. That's not what God is saying here. But we've had plenty of teaching on the image of God, what that means. And, and certainly right here in Scripture, we see a, a good portion of what that means in what immediately uh, proceeds after that, which is let them have dominion. There's an aspect of the image of God on our dominion, which is immediately what it says in that passage. Like, let us make them in the image of God and let them have dominion. We are co-rulers with God. God is a ruler. He is someone with power and authority. 
And because we are image bearers, he gives us that same power and authority, right? But if you just kind of summarize, if you just kind of boil it all down, all that teaching about the image of God and what that means, it simply means that in some sense, you and I are godlike. We're made in his likeness. We're godlike. Doesn't mean we're God. Doesn't mean we are deserving of worship, right? But we're certainly deserving of veneration, of honor, of dignity. You know, this is actually where the fundamental idea of human rights even comes in. Human rights, folks, was a Christian idea. And again, we have this pseudo-Christian culture where we talk about human rights, not even realizing that the only reason people even talk about it is because we enculturated them to think that way. Human rights was a Christian invention. The idea that every person has fundamental rights of, of honor and dignity and every person on earth should be respected comes from this. That in some way, all of humanity is godlike. Godlike. We are made in his likeness. When I look at Andrew, I can see revelation of God. I can see revelation of God when I look at a, a Hindu bowing in prayer. Not because of the act that they're doing, not because of, but because they bear his image. I can see revelation from them even if they're in sin, right? Because I can see that God's image is stamped on their life. And therefore, everyone is deserving of honor, dignity, respect. I mean, this is why Peter, we've talked about honor in here before. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter, honor the emperor, who at the time was Emperor Nero. This is this pagan emperor who, who is burning Christians to light the streets of Rome, who is sending families into the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild beasts, men, women, and children, Right? You know, this, this evil, wicked emperor. He goes, honor him. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor him even. Why? Because in some way, he's godlike. You know, I think of, uh, I think of King David. King David. Now, this is, this is a little bit different of a story. But if you guys remember King David and Saul... And King David at the cave. And Saul is within grasp. David could kill him right there. And David, even in that moment, where Saul is this now this wicked king. Saul is a wicked king. He's demon-possessed. Right? Because demons would come, and David would play his harp, and the demon would flee. Right? But David's not playing the harp anymore. Saul is demon-possessed. He is a wicked, demon-possessed king who is obsessed with now with only himself with only his pride, with trying to keep David from the throne. And, and David, even in that moment of, of where he's, he's in reach of killing this man who's trying to kill him, it wouldn't even be considered murder because it's self-defense, right? This man is trying to kill David and he's within reach. Wicked man, demon-possessed. And David says, dare I touch the Lord's anointed? Like, no, 
Dare I, like, I, far be it from me to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. You know, it's a little bit different context because, you know, the anointing of a king and all that kind of stuff. But I think there's still an element there of David recognizing, like, even in the midst of this utterly wicked man, he is still godlike. And I will not dishonor God by dishonoring him. That's, a, that's pretty extreme. <clears throat> All of humanity, godlike, in some fashion. But we know that something happened, right? The something. We know that something happened. Sin crept into the equation. Just turn a page in your Bible. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You shall surely die. You know, like the image of God, there's been plenty of teaching on the consequences and results of sin. You know, what has sin produced in the earth? What has sin produced in humanity? There's been tons of teaching about it. But look at this. God says to Adam, who is like him, Adam is godlike, he resembles God. You look at Adam and you can glimpse God. God says, when you eat of this tree, if you do, you will die. Now, is, does God die? He's eternal. So, again, just boiling it all down, what is, what is God actually saying to Adam? In the day that you eat of this tree, you will stop to perfectly resemble me. You will no longer perfectly resemble my nature and character. When you eat of this tree, you will cease to be a beautiful reflection of me. There'll be a twisting that occurs. Something that occurs will creep in that is not like who I am. Death, right? In, you know, and again, I'm trying to boil all of the teaching we've had around sin's consequences and results and blah, blah, down to kind of one statement here. But what God is really saying to Adam is, hey, you'll stop purely looking like me when you eat of this tree. And I find it so interesting because what tempts Eve to eat the tree? The lie of the serpent that she doesn't look like God. When you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. That's what Satan says. And Eve's like, oh yeah, but she was already like God. And it was eating of the tree that made her not like God. Right? I mean, it's crazy, right? The, the twisting and, and perversion of Satan. But that's what, he, that's what, he, that's, that's what occurred when, when Eve ate that apple or whatever fruit it was or whatever it was. And then she gave it to her husband. And he ate. Is that a perversion crept into the human race? People who were once pure in their godlikeness and resembled God in such purity and beauty of reflection. Now there was a taint, there was a twisting. And while there was still the image of God on their life, it had now been twisted in a way that 
that something that, that now they weren't just reflecting him, they were reflecting something that was very opposite of him. Paul actually commentates on this in Ephesians 2. I'm going to go there quick. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. After 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. This is not where I'm trying to talk about. Hold on one second. <laughs> that was Galatians. That's right. That's very true. It was Galatians. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What's Paul saying? He's saying, he's saying, look, all of us, because of that first sin, which twisted the image that humanity was reflecting, all of us then were dead. Dead. Unlike God, who is eternal. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Chained to the prince of the power of the air. Held hostage by Satan. Right? Who, is the who are the princes and princesses of the air? Before sin. Humanity. Humanity was given dominion over the earth. But when we submitted to Satan, he took that authority for himself and we became his prisoners, his slaves. You're falling after the course of this world, at the prince of the power of the air, in, in all of your wickedness, in all of these ways, right? By nature, children of wrath. What is he saying? He's saying that your very nature, the way your, your entire being is aimed, what, the way that you've been twisted is towards violence. You are naturally a violent person. You are naturally violent people who are trying to seek power and dominate and control, right? By nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Paul's commentating on this, the results of sin. There's a twisting and a fundamental problem that occurs in people that there's only one solution for folks there's only one solution for folks doesn't matter how progressive we become it doesn't matter how how you know beautiful our laws reflect godliness it doesn't matter how how much we christianize the world with christendom the only solution to this problem is Jesus. The only solution. You know, this is about the best we can get, folks. The world has been being Christianized. Western culture has been being Christianized for 1,600 years. This is the best we can do. The United States is the pinnacle of pseudo-Christianization. Of fake Christianity. The United States is the pinnacle of it. It's the best we can do. And there's still rampant wickedness. Why? Because it's not about that. It's about one solution, Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on in verse 4. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and, and, in the, uh, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus comes and he looks upon the depravity of humanity and he makes a way for humanity to become new creations for that twistedness, for that taintedness, for that disease of the soul, that disease of the heart to be solved. He makes the way. And when we come to faith in Him, we are transformed into a new creation. Our old nature is gone. It's done away with. We now, once again, are like Adam and Eve in the garden, image bearers of God, perfectly reflecting does that mean we can't sin? No, it, we can totally sin. Just like Adam and Eve could sin, being perfect in every way. We sin through deception though now, not because of our nature. This is the solution that God gives us. But for those who are outside of this single soul solution, the, the depravity of humanity is an absolute reality. You know, Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verse 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Jeremiah 17.9. <clears throat> Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Desperately sick. Praise be to God that Jesus became our antidote. That Jesus became the medicine that we needed for our heart to be made new. For our heart of stone to become a heart of flesh. For that law of God to be written on our heart. Not just externally be enforced over our lives. Come on. The Jews, folks, under the old covenant, which was probably, well, it wasn't probably, that, that actually, not the United States, the Jewish nation under the Old Covenant was the perfect expression of, of Christendom, of, of an external enforcement of righteousness. Guess what? Every single one of them were still absolutely wicked and depraved. Jesus actually says this in John 8. He says, uh, here we go, John 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, What are you talking about? We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered, 
I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus condemns all of Israel because there had not been a single one since Adam who was without sin. Therefore, all of humanity became enslaved to sin. Romans, I mean, this is the Romans road, right? Like all of humanity is under slavery to sin. And there's one solution, Jesus Christ. The diagnosis is human depravity. Now, okay, take a breath. Because that's so often where we stop. And then we go, well, thanks be to God he set me free. Right? But now it's us versus them. Now it's those who've been made new creations versus the wickedness of mankind. It's so easy to go there. It's so easy to look at that situation, the the diagnosis of humanity, and go, okay, well then it's time to retreat. It's time to pull back. It's time to... It's time to you know, drive a wedge between us and the world. But that's not the answer. Us versus them, when we have that kind of a mindset, it devalues people who even though they're twisted, they still bear the image of God. It heaps dishonor upon them. And it causes us to fight the wrong fight. And we've talked about this before. What, what does honor mean in a biblical sense? To dishonor, biblically, means to treat as common. I've preached this so many times, I don't need to dwell on it. To dishonor means to treat as common. Hatimas in the Greek. To treat as common. To treat as, as a commoner, not that important or less than important. Right? To honor means to treat as extraordinary. To treat as special, valuable. How does honor manifest? Well, if you're out to coffee with someone, honor could manifest as, I'm going to listen to you. Right? I'm not going to talk a mile a minute and dominate this conversation, and, you know, but I'm actually going to value you enough to listen to you, even if I disagree with you. Right? I'm going to value you enough to listen to you. I'm going to value you enough, I'm going to value you enough to recognize, even amidst all the twistedness, recognize what's still valuable inside of you. People are evil, yes, but they're still image bearers. Here's, here's what amazes me. John 8, Jesus condemns all of the Jewish people. He says, hey, look, like, why do you need to be set free? Well, because you're a slave to sin. Have you ever sinned before? Yeah, well, then you're a slave to sin. Sorry, you submitted to the enemy and you're chained to him. You need freedom. Yet at the same time, even in the midst of depravity, this is where we need balance. Even in the midst of depravity, God calls people throughout the Old Testament righteous. 
Now, it's not a perfect righteousness. It's not a righteousness like Christ says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not a perfect righteousness, but it's, it is a real righteousness. Real goodness. You know, he says this of, of a number of people. Abel is called righteous. Noah, Lot, Job, Asa, Daniel. Uh, in the New Testament, before Christ went to the cross, Joseph, husband of Mary, is called righteous. Joseph of Arimathea, John the Baptist, Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, Simeon. And even in the midst of this depravity, God calls Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all of the prophets, workers of righteousness. Which tells me something. Doesn't mean that they're off the hook. It doesn't mean that they don't need Jesus. Look, when an old covenant person passed away, they did not go to heaven. They went to Abraham's bosom, where Jesus came then, preached to them, and led them to heaven after they had their faith put in Christ. They still needed Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. But the interesting thing is, even in the midst of twisted human depravity, which encompasses all of the earth, there is still enough residual grace from the image of God on humanity where they can do something that is truly good. They can't perfect themselves, not by works that man is saved. Again, that's not what we're talking about. But they can do things that are genuinely good through the residual divine empowerment that comes from the image of God on their life, however twisted it has become. Kirk, you preached a message at our last library gathering, and you talked about how in engaging with the world, you had to learn how to look past obvious sin and find, however hidden, however difficult it was to see, find that little gold that's still there from the image of God on their life. You had to learn how to look past obvious sin. Maybe look past is the wrong word, because we don't want to overlook sin. That's not the thing here. Sin has to be dealt with. Absolutely, it has to be dealt with. But we look through, maybe. Beyond. That's a better word. We look beyond the sin. We don't just look at the sin. We look beyond the sin, and we can find under every human being, depraved human being, we can still find the remnants and the residual grace of the image of God on their life. And, and even just a little bit of goodness that's still there. And this is how... Folks, we can, we can choose to value people who are killing babies. We can choose to honor people who are absolutely doing wicked things in the earth. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Emperor Nero. Wicked man. Sending children, men, women to the lions and wolves, right? But honor him anyway. 
The man who would just a few years later kill Peter, crucifying him upside down on the cross. Peter goes, no, honor him too. Because even there's this obvious wickedness, if you look with God's eyes, if you actually have prophetic vision, if you're able to actually see, not just carnally, but see spiritually, you can still discern the goodness that dwells within people. It's not, an, it's not salvation. They still need Jesus. But there's, there is that residual goodness that we can then draw out, that we can pull out, and we can say, hey, this is who you were created to be. You know that time when you did this and it changed this person's life, totally redirected their life? That's who you were created to be. Yeah, I know, you know, it really fulfilled me when I did that. It was super, it was like, it was like something otherworldly. You know, when I helped that person out of addiction, it was like, it was like something otherworldly. But, you know, I've never been able to have that kind of connection with people since. It, it, it was like a fleeting something. Yeah, but that's who you were created to be. And if you want to have that be what you walk in continually, Jesus is the antidote for all of that stuff that's hindering it. Come and be set free from bondage to sin. You look, says, we got to draw out of people that little speck of gold, that little speck of righteousness that's still there. Draw it out of people. Put it before them. This is who you were created to be. This is the image of God on your life. This is Paul in Romans 7 where he's talking about his past life as a Pharisee. And he goes, oh, man, you know what it was like? It was like I was just warring with myself all the day long. It was, it was, I was just looking in myself and realizing, oh, there's just nothing good here. I want to do good. I want, I genuinely want to do good, but I'm always being pulled by the torments and, and bondage of sin. And then he goes, thanks be to God. Who will set me free from the body of this death? This is what Paul declares in Romans 7. Who will set me free from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look, you begin drawing people out. Drawing righteousness, the goodness that's still within people, drawing it out of them, saying this is, this is who you were created to be. This is who you really are. If you would just allow all the, 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 the sludge and the stuff that's weighed you down to just be washed clean, this is who you really are, that God intended for you to be. Let it come out. If you put that before them, they start going, oh, who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, I'll tell you, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to end here. John 3.16. We don't often read the whole, we don't often read the whole passage. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. That is a generally true statement. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But verse 20, I'm sorry, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You and I, you and I folks, are, are light now in this world. And if all we ever do is drive a wedge between ourselves and the world, say it's us versus them, say absolute depravity, wickedness, horrendous acts, get out, you know, be gone from me, you sinner. That light then is scaring them away. Because they go, how dark am I? Which is true, right? The darkness that exists within me, I don't want to have anything to do with the light. I don't want to even come near it. Because my deeds will be exposed. But if we as light begin to draw out even that smidgen of gold that's still there, residual grace from the image of God, excuse me, if we begin to draw that out of people, then it's, it's like Paul he goes, oh, I want freedom. I want that. I, I, because there is something good. However small, there is something still good in me. And I know that's who I was really supposed to be. It's not who I am currently, but I know it's who I was really supposed to be. And I want that. So who will set me free from the body of this death? They come to the light so that their works may be shown as having been wrought in God. So how do we respond? Do we withdraw into our sheltered communities, into ourselves? Do we condemn the world, everyone in it from a distance? No, we run after the world. Not the world system. We don't run after the world. We run after the people of the world. And we honor and we value them in the midst of their depravity. Folks, here's a reality. You can disagree with me. That's fine. I think fruit will prove my words true. The days of street preaching with tracks are done. The days of, of beating people over the head with the Bible are done. The days of Billy Graham crusades. He's passed now. The days of Billy Graham crusades are done. The only thing that is actually going to be effective in this current climate we exist in, the only thing is actual, genuine, not fake, relationships 
This is the only thing. It's the only thing that is going to win this culture, that is going to win this nation, that is going to win this world we live in, is genuine relationships with people who are not believers. And the only way to have a genuine relationship is if you can genuinely honor and value someone. If it's fake, if you don't have any honor in your heart towards that person, they know it. If you're just putting on a smile and a face, they know it. Evangelism in the 21st century is only going to be accomplished through relationships, nothing else. At least in any largely effective sense. And that requires real honor, real value, and the ability, like Kirk said, to, to look beyond their overt sin, find, however tarnished and hidden, that residual grace of the image of God in their life, and to bring it out of them, and to continually declare to them, this is who you were called to be. This is who you were made to be. This is who God made you and created you to be. And the solution to get here is Jesus Christ. Amen. Come on, stand to your feet. God, bring us both to will and to do your good pleasure. Make us willing. Give us confidence. Give us strength to do the hard work of real relationships with those in the world. It's hard work. You guys, relationships, relational evangelism is way more difficult than street evangelism. Way more difficult. Because it requires authenticity, it requires intimacy, it requires discomfort beyond a fleeting moment, it requires real interaction. God, give us strength to do the hard work of relationships with those in the world. God, give us a heart for them. Let us see with your eyes that can still perceive, however slight, the image of God on people who are totally depraved, who are absolutely workers of wickedness. Help us, God, to see the gold that still resides within them, however deep and diminished. And help us to draw it out of them by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, speaking the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for coming out.